Tonight I'm going to talk about Samatha and Vipassana and probably also the four establishments of mindfulness. Samatha and Vipassana are very hot topics and it has been the subject of much debate and controversy for hundreds of years especially for teachers who don't give much attention to what is found in the scriptures but speak from their own personal experience if you research the Pali scriptures the suttas it is very clear that the Buddha had defined Samatha and Vipassana and they are not quite the same they are quite different because they deal with two different things the word Samatha is usually translated as serenity tranquility or less often as stillness or stilling and vipassana is usually translated as insight I would prefer to translate samatha as stilling because it's all about stilling the mind Vipassana instead of translating it as insight I would prefer to translate it as distinct seeing because we the prefix for pasana we means distinctly clearly and pasana means seeing There's one particular sutta called the Tati Asamari Sutta in the Ankudra Nikaya, Book of Force, Sutta number 94. The third discourse on Samadhi, on concentration or composure. Again, Samadhi is often translated as concentration, but I prefer to translate it as composure, or even better, compo-focus a word which I coined many years ago but which I have not really popularized in this sutta the Buddha talked about four types of persons the first type of person is one who has internal tranquility of mind which is samatha but no vipassana The second type of person is one who has vipassana but no samatha. The third is one who has neither. And the fourth is someone who has both. So the Buddha advised that one who has samatha but no vipassana should go and learn vipassana from someone who has vipassana and one who has vipassana but no samatha to go learn samatha from someone who has samatha the third individual who doesn't have either who doesn't have both should go and learn from someone who has both then the last person one who has both should not rest complacent with minor attainments but should strive on until final liberation The Buddha then went on to give more details. He said, this person who has samatha but no vipassana should approach someone who has vipassana and ask him three questions. And one who has vipassana but no samatha should approach someone who has samatha and ask him 
four questions. And then one who has neither should approach somebody who has both and ask him seven questions. Instead of starting from the first person, I'll start with the second person because this is about samatha. So this person who has vipassana but without samatha, which is a bit strange, right? I always say that you need to have some degree of composure before you can start to do vipassana. But the Buddha says that there could be somebody who has vipassana even without samatha. These are probably very special individuals. So you should approach somebody who has samatha and ask him four questions. And to give you a literal translation from the Pali, the first question is, how is the citta, how is the mind, to be made to stand still, stand properly? How should the mind or the citta be made to stand properly? The second question, how should the citta or the mind be made to sit properly? The third question, how should the citta or the mind be unified? And finally, how should the citta or the mind be composed? So these are the four questions. You will see that all these questions are about the citta, about the mind. So samatha is about the citta. That's why it's called samatha, because it's all about how to still the mind, the citta. So the first question, how to make the mind stand properly? Now, this is very difficult to understand. If you just read the Pali, without looking at translation, it really doesn't make sense. How can you make the mind stand? How can you make the mind sit? Well, the way I understand it is that the mind is usually like a monkey. is running all over the place. So when you try to make the mind stand properly, it means that you're trying to stabilize it, make it less crazy like a monkey. And when you try to make it sit properly, it means that you're making it even more stable, to settle down even more. There's a second step. The third step is to unify it, so that it's not all over the place, but it's in one place. And the last one, to compose it. Now the word composure comes from the Pali word samadhi. Samadhi is a noun. So here there's a verb form that is used. And it is actually composed of three parts. Sang, A and D. Samadhi. Sang means properly. A means bring and D means place. Properly bring and place the mind. That's the literal meaning, the etymological meaning. So let me explain this in terms of practical experience. When you first started your practice, the first thing you did was Arahang Samasambuddho and Sukino. I told you earlier that this is a Samatha practice. It's a focused awareness Samatha practice. Why is that so? Because you're actually trying to steal the mind. When you first arrived, you're full of baggages, right? All the stuff that you had been dealing with in the busy world, you come here, it's not so easy to just lock them up in a certain place. As you sit and meditate, all these thoughts will come. Things that you forgot to do, things that you should have done, and so forth, all these sorts of things playback of all the the important events that have an influence on your life. So when you try to recite Arahang Samasambuddho or Sukhino, if it's something new to you, you have to put in a lot of effort to remember the tune and to memorize the words. So during the time when you're trying to memorize, you will notice that your mind is free from all those baggage. So actually, it is relatively stilled of distracting thoughts. But after some time, when you get used to the chanting, you already know the tune very well, you already know the words very well, 
then the mind will start to drift off again. So you have to consolidate the stillness of the mind and bring it back again and again until the chanting becomes automatic. So initially, you're trying to make the mind stand in the sense that you are trying to stop it from running all over the place, thinking of the things of the past, worrying about the future, and you place it on one object. That is the chanting. So after some time, when you are able to keep it there, then the thoughts become less because people say that time heals all wounds. So the further you are removed from the time when these thoughts first occurred, then their pull on you will automatically reduce this nature. Since you are spending more time now actively trying to memorize and recite something new, your mind is now getting more and more still. So this is called making the mind stand. When you make the mind sit, it means that you are even making it more stable. And you find that your mind doesn't run off so fast now. It is getting to the chanting. And when does the mind become unified? The mind becomes unified. There's no more restrictions. Your mind is just with the chanting. You're not distracted by anything around you, either externally or internally by your internal chatter. That is when the mind becomes unified. It stays in one place and it's not all over the place thinking about this or that. The last one is how to make the mind compose, how to properly bring and place the mind. So when your mind is really unified, then that means to say that you have really some control over the mind. At that point of time, then the mind becomes malleable, you can bring and place it wherever you want to. So that is the end result. These are four steps. The end result of Samatha practice is Samadhi, the ability to properly bring and place the mind. That's the same also if you do Anapanasati, you're just focusing on your breath. So when you do that very often, automatically the mind will just settle there. If you want to watch the breath, you know, long or short, or you want to deliberately slow down your breath, or to make it short, you can also do that. Now, when we talk about open awareness, we're also doing the same thing. I mentioned to you the 561 principle. So, because once the mind is engaged in something, one object, then it will not be able to think of the past or future or the present. So initially when you're doing open awareness you might have some difficulty especially those people who practice meditation with their eyes closed. They always complain. When you ask them to open their eyes to meditate they say how to meditate so many distractions. There's a monkey mind because you're so used to shutting out that door that eye door so and you're just used to just blanking everything out and just focusing on your breath, the moment you open up your senses, then you cannot meditate anymore. You are lost. So initially, it's quite a struggle to compose the mind by keeping track of what's happening at the senses, particularly if you follow this free and easy touch and go, which is so different from focused awareness where you just hold on to one object and not let go. Free and easy touch and go is about letting go, touch and go, touch and go. Now you might wonder, if the mind is so busy with the senses, how can it ever get composed? I'm sure that some of you who have been successful in practicing open awareness will testify that surprisingly, even though the mind is busy with all the five senses, it still can be composed. It's still very peaceful. And there are no thoughts. No thoughts about what you sense through the senses, no thoughts about the past or the future. The absence of thinking shows that the mind is now standing properly, sitting properly, and finally, what I taught you this morning, putting your attention in one place where you feel or think the mind is. 
or if you don't then you just put it in space in front of you like a spider like a singles badminton player when you do that instead of going outwards to the objects of the senses which normally people do they think that the sound is coming from there they're looking there they feel the sensations coming from here and there all over but when you get to the point where you can stay at one place then instead of going outwards to the objects the objects come to you come to that mind in effect you are actually focusing on the mind on the sixth sense at that point but however the sixth sense is like a CPU and all the other data is coming through it to be processed so unlike the breath the mind is changing all the time according to what is being perceived through all the senses all the five senses including itself if you are able to maintain that state that is unifying the mind in one place the mind is not all over the place once you reach that place then you can direct the mind to wherever you want to that is samadhi properly bring and place the mind where you want to so this is the whole process of samadhi stilling the mind now we come to the first individual who has attained samatha but no vipassana then the Buddha says this person should go look for someone who has vipassana and ask him three questions first question how are sankharas to be viewed second question how are sankharas to be investigated third question how are sankharas to be distinctly seen so you see the difference in samatha the question is about the citta how to make the citta stand properly sit properly how to unify the citta how to compose the citta but here in vipassana it's not about the citta it's about sankhara how to view sankhara how to investigate sankhara how to distinctly see sankhara the practice of samatha is just to still the mind nothing about investigation and the practice of vipassana is nothing about stilling the mind it's about investigation it's about processing the information the data in a certain way so the first thing you need to know before you can learn how to view or investigate or distinctly see the first thing you need to do is to find out what is sankhara if you don't know what sankhara is how are you going to view so you need to know what is sankhara however the Buddha did not explain or define what sankhara is in that sutta but if you make research in the suttas you will find that it's found elsewhere if you look at the etymology of the word sankhara it actually means whatever that is the product of causes and conditions that is sankhara now you must not confuse this sankhara this big sankhara with the small sankhara <laughs> what I call big and small the small sankhara is the fourth aggregate in the five aggregates we have the first aggregate is rupa which is matter or form and then the second aggregate is vedana or feelings the third aggregate is sanya or perception no recognition identification then the fourth aggregate is sankhara usually translated as volitional formations sometimes mental formations and the last one is vijnana or consciousness because these are the five aggregates so in these five aggregates number four is sankhara but this sankhara is different from the other sankhara that I just mentioned earlier this sankhara in the five aggregates is only concerned with intentions anything that involves intention and volition is classified under sankhara the other aggregates the form the feeling the memory or perception the recognition and the last one consciousness 
they don't involve volition. They are all resultants. Now this big Sankara is not necessarily concerned with volition. The fourth Sankara in that five aggregates is also a type of Sankara in the sense that your volition, your choice, your intention is also a result of causes and conditions. So are the rest of the aggregates. Your body is also a result of cause and condition. Your feelings also is a result of cause and condition. Your perceptions, your recognitions, your identification are all also products of causes and condition. Your consciousness is also a product of causes and condition. All the five aggregates are products of causes and conditions. But not only that, your ideas, your views, your beliefs, your opinions, your expectations, your hopes, all these are also products of causes and conditions. So, you must be careful because there are some meditation teachers who are trained in the Abhidhamic tradition. And in the Abhidhamic tradition, they say that the Sankhara, which is an object of Vipassana, refers only to so-called ultimate realities. And ultimate realities are the five aggregates. Because if you look at the things that I told you, your ideas, thoughts, opinions, beliefs, expectations, and so forth, these are not found in the five aggregates per se. Although you could lump all of them in Sankhara. For the Abhidhamikas, they say, no, that's not. In Sankhara is only concerned with volition. These things, like you have an idea, you have an opinion, you have a belief, you have an expectation, these are all concepts. These are concepts that need intellectual conception. You have to conceptualize through the intellect. But ultimate reality, on the other hand, can be directly experienced without having to go through the intellect. So that's how they define it. I can understand how they come to their conclusion, how they come to that sort of view, because modern scholars have come to the general consensus that the Abhidhamma was not preached by the Buddha. The Abhidhamma that we have currently was not preached by the Buddha. The Abhidhamma was developed since the Buddha's time until much later. They say that it was during Asoka's time that it was finally canonized. So it was built upon things like the five aggregates, the 18 elements, you know, the sense bases and so forth. These are the things that you can find in Sanyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha and also about causation and these things. So they are built upon that, but they were not categorized and analyzed in so much detail by the Buddha himself. So initially, I believe that the Abhidhamma came about through the very profound meditative experiences of the Teras, initially. Then later on, I think it became more and more intellectual. First it was experiential, later it became intellectual. You see, when you meditate and you reach a state of samadhi where there are no more thoughts, no more discursive thinking, no more initial thinking, no thoughts at all. I think some of you have also experienced that. It's just awareness of what's happening in the senses. No thoughts about the present or the past or the future. So people get lost. Now what to watch? You know, no more thoughts. Before that, I was watching thoughts, you know, it's quite enjoyable to see how these thoughts are formed because of this cause and this condition, all these concept things when you were young, memories popped up, you see something, type of food in the kitchen, in the dining hall, and then it automatically, you know, memories of your childhood days will pop up and you had a good time with your family eating that food and so forth. So all this you can see, the cause and condition, very interesting. But when you go to a state of no thought, 
thought free state <laughs> you cannot see cause and condition anymore because there's nothing to see no more thoughts no more ideas no more concepts so what you have left there is only the sense basis the sense consciousness the sense object and then you have also the five aggregates you have feeling you have perception you have volitional formations you have consciousness these are the things that you watch but these are ultimate realities so that's why they talk so much about ultimate realities because that's what they experienced through in deep meditation these are renunciants these are monks who are full time meditators not like you guys uh, part time once a year you come only 10 days of uh, one week <laughs> the rest of the time you are dealing with concepts <laughs> But they are living with the ultimate reality every day. <laughs> okay, so if you were to just confine the objects of Vipassana to ultimate realities, then the chances of lay people getting anywhere is almost nil. <laughs> so that's why I have been trying to tell people for many, many years now that you should not limit the object of vipassana to just ultimate realities. After all, Sankhara was not defined by the Buddha as ultimate realities. You know, Sankhara is anything that is a product of causes and conditions. And as lay people who are very much involved in the world of concepts, you can also see that all these things that I've been telling you about, your thoughts, your perceptions, your ideas about things, your aspirations, your expectations, your shoulds and the should-nots, you know, all these are all based on causes and conditions, all based on past conditioning and present circumstances. So, I would say that is what Sankara is. Ultimate realities, the five aggregates, plus your six sense bases and the objects and the consciousness, plus all these things that are products of causes and conditions, all these conceptual things. Okay, so now we know what to do. Vipassana is about Sankaras. The Chitta is also part of Sankara. But when you do Samatha, although you are concerned with the Chitta, you are not concerned about investigating them or understanding what they are. You just want to steal the Chitta so that it becomes ready for you to investigate three questions the first question is how to view sankaras ok now we know what are sankaras the fiery gates plus all these conceptual things I'm sure that many of you in the course of your practice you would have noticed that you have thoughts and perceptions and comments about things going on right you go to the kitchen you have thoughts about how well the food is cooked or how badly it tastes or it's not up to your expectations all these things are going on in your mind and you think that it's my thought my feeling my perception my opinion my view that's not a wrong view because there's no one there all these things are all products of causes and conditions so that's why if you want to do Vipassana you must start off with the right view to see that all these things all the Sankharas uh, exhibit the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, not self. And by definition, they are sankharas, so they must have cause and condition. They are products of causes and conditions. So, that's the first question. How to view sankharas? You are supposed to view them in terms of impermanence, suffering, and not self. Because they are sankharas, cause and condition is really inherent in them. Now, it's not enough just to see things arise and pass away. Because if you just see things arise and pass away, you can still come to a wrong view. The first wrong view is that if you don't see cause and conditioning, you just see arising and passing away, then you know it came out of itself and it went off by itself. I didn't do it. Maybe there's somebody up there who is trying to play tricks on me. That's one wrong view. Thinking that there's an external entity in control of the things that are not within your control. The second wrong view could be that 
Everything is random, no cause, no condition. It wants to happen, it just happens. There's no system, no structure, no order. Random. So these are the two types of wrong view that can arise if you do not view Sankharas in order to see the cause and conditioning. Not just the three characteristics, but you must also see cause and conditioning. That's why in many places in the suttas, the Buddha talked about the five aggregates and talking about how if you can see the arising and passing of the five aggregates, that will lead you to Aranship. But he didn't say just see the arising and passing away. He says, this is form. He knows this is form. This is feeling. This is perception. This is volitional formation. This is consciousness. This is how form arises. This is how form goes away. This is how feeling arises. This is how feeling passes away. This is how sanya or perception arises and this is how it passes away. And so forth. Each of the five aggregates is seeing how they arise and how they pass away. Which means to say you know the cause and condition. Not just seeing them arise and pass away, but to know the cause and condition, why they arise and why they pass away. So this is the theory. So theory is very important. Without theory, without telling you how to look at Sankaras, you may look at Sankara, yeah, you can see all your thoughts and emotions and reactions, but you identify with them and say, it's my, me, myself. That's wrong view. You have to look at them as not mine, not me, not myself. They are products of causes and conditions. That's the first one. The second one is, now we know the theory, how to view them. Got to view them in terms of this, this and this. But how to do so? In practice, how to do? Instead of, this can be done intellectually, you know. You can look at everything and then say, oh, it's not mine, not me, not myself because of this and that. Intellectual. Just like I've been explaining to you what is cause and condition. You understand intellectually, but you have not really experienced it. To experience it means to be able to see and immediately know, oh, this is the cause and condition, why this thought arose, why this intention arose. You can see very clearly, I didn't purposely think that thought, I didn't purposely have that intention. It arose because of this particular cause and these conditions. That is actually going to the last step, really. That is distinct seeing. You can distinctly see that this happens. So the first step is the cause. The last step is the result. That is the effect. The second step, how to investigate, is also a technique to show you how to make use of the view and to verify in actual experience. So here I tell you, compose your mind first. When the mind is composed, meaning thoughts are spaced far apart, then you incline the mind to verify the three characteristics and cause and conditioning. When you incline the mind, like I say, is not actively using your intellect to analyze and dissect things. It means just to arouse that sense of curiosity, arouse that sense of wanting to know, wanting to experience. You just do that, and then don't think about it, come back to just free and easy touch and go at the anchor. So that is the technique. So as you do that, as the Sambhajanya or your wisdom gets more matured, when the conditions are right, it will by itself understand and distinctly see these things are the products of causes and conditions. Okay, that's the third step. So the first two steps are the causes before you can get the last one. So you don't worry about the last one. The last one will come of itself provided you do your homework. These two. You know you have the right view, you try to apply the right view and then this distinct seeing will arise. Okay, I hope you are clear about this. Let me repeat, this is very important. 
Samatha is all about the citta, about the mind, how to steal the mind. Vipassana is all about Sankhara, how to view Sankharas, how to investigate them, and how to distinctly see them. Now there's another sutta that's called Yoganatta Sutta, also in the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Force, Sutta number 170. This discourse was given by Asma Ananda. He was staying in a monastery in Kosambi, Gositarama, and there he addressed the monks. He told the monks that anyone, whether a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni, who comes to him and declares that they have attained arahantship, will say that they attained arahantship through four ways or any one of them. I don't know if there is a mistake in the way it is phrased. Perhaps it shouldn't be just four ways or any one of them, but it could be through any of the four ways or combination of them. This sounds more logical to me. But anyway, in the scripture it says in four ways or any one of them. So the first is Vipassana preceded by Samatha. So when a monk or a nun practices Vipassana preceded by Samatha, then the path will arise in him, then he will develop the path and then he will attain Aranjit, liberation. The second type is Samatha preceded by Vipassana. The third type is Samatha and Vipassana in tandem together. And the last one is none of the above. Let me explain. So, Vipassana preceded by Samatha is like what I'm teaching you now. First, you try to calm your mind through Buddha Nusati, through Sukino, or through open awareness, free and easy touch and go. And then, after that, I ask you to do Vipassana. When I ask you to orient your mind or incline your mind to verify the three characteristics and cause and condition, that is doing one and two of vipassana. Yeah, step three will be a resultant will be a result of steps one and two. The second one is doing vipassana first and then doing samatha later. As I said, this one is probably for very special individuals, maybe even for intellectuals. The way I understand it is this. If you are an intellectual and you have a very rational mind, you can understand all these things about Anicca, Dukkha, Nata, intellectually and maybe by observation and maybe not directly in real time, but by reflecting on the past experiences you could see that actually everything is impermanent, suffering, not self, everything is a product of causes and conditions. You can understand that intellectually. So you distinctly see, but on an intellectual level. So when you see that actually, your mind becomes composed because you are able to accept things. The reason why people are agitated is because they cannot accept things. They always one thinks other to be what is happening. They are not satisfied with what is happening. They want something else. That's why they are agitated. <laughs> if you are able to accept whatever comes, you are not agitated, right? No problem. So because this person has already understood intellectually and also, you could say, reprogrammed his mindset to intellectually view everything as impermanent, suffering, not self, everything is a product of forces and conditions, then it's very easy for him to be composed. So that's why Vipassana comes first and composure comes later. That composure comes about through wisdom, understanding that things are all impermanent, suffering, not self, and 
they arise due to cause and conditions, many of which are beyond our control. The third individual is one who does both together. Sometimes I say, well, some of you have done focused awareness before, and automatically your mind settles at the rising and falling or at your breath. So I say, okay, in that case, since you've already trained your mind to do so for so many years, you stay there. But then, slowly open up your awareness, ask the mind, besides the breath, besides the rising and falling, what else can the mind be aware of? Okay? So while you're aware of that rising and falling or that breathing at your nostrils, you're also slowly opening up your awareness. When you have a fixed primary object like that, that's also samatha, that is stilling the mind, keeping the mind still. At the same time, you are attending to other things that are happening. So, if you are attending to other things that are happening with the idea of investigating, of trying to verify the three characteristics and cause and condition, then you are doing both together. The last one is Dhammudajja Vigahita Manasam. So for this person, this bhikkhu, prior to that experience, he never did Samatha nor Vipassana. But somehow his mind was agitated by restlessness about the Dhamma. When you are restless at that time, wisdom cannot arise. So he just says that his mind is seized by restlessness about the Dhamma. And then on another occasion, then his mind settles. He settles internally. It stands properly, it sits properly, it becomes unified and it becomes composed. And at that time, then the path arose in him and he develops that path. So this probably refers to those people during the Buddha's time who got enlightened while they were listening to Dhamma talk. Right? They never did any Dhamma talk. They didn't do any Vipassana. They just sat there. First time ever, they sit down and listen to the Buddha and while listening, they get enlightened. In fact, as far as I know, all the non-bhikkhus during the Buddha's time got enlightened by listening to a Dhamma talk. Mostly the Buddha himself giving the talk or one of the disciples. Only those who cannot get enlightened later think that they should become monks and nuns and then only they do a retreat. These are special individuals. Nowadays, people tend to think that the Satipatthana Sutta is very important. When people talk about Vipassana meditation, they always refer to the Satipatthana. But if you study the Satipatthana Sutta, the word Vipassana or the Samatha is not even mentioned there. Not a single word of Samatha or Vipassana in the Satipatthana Sutta. The closest you can get is Anupasana. You have the word Pasana there. At least something in common. Vipassana is we. Pasana. That is Anu Pasana. So you have a common denominator. Here is V and there is Anu. And in the Satipatthana Sutta that we have these days, we have one in the Diga Nikaya and one in the Majjhima Nikaya. The long discourses of the Buddha, the middle length discourses of the Buddha, and they are exactly the same. It's a wonder why you should put exactly the same Sutta in two different Nikayas. So I talked about this in my Satipatthana Sutta study workshop in 2012, long time ago. In fact, in the Sri Lankan version of the scriptures of the Pali Canon, the difference between the Mahasatipatthana Sutta in the Diga Nikaya and the Satipatthana Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya is that one is shorter and the other one is longer. The other one is about twice as long as the one in the Majjhima. And that's because of the elaboration of the Four Noble Truths at the end in Dhammanupasana. But in any case, even both of these in the Dikanikaya and in the Majjhimanikaya, both of these also are believed by some scholars and including me to be composites. They are not the actual sutta that was discussed by the Buddha but they were made of 
bits and pieces from different suttas pieced together as a composite maybe for easy reference there are quite a number of inconsistencies within the sutta itself to show that it cannot be an original sutta that is made of bits and pieces from here and there now we also have one section in the Sangyuta Nikaya called the Sadipatana Sangyuta discourses connected with the Sadipatana and there we have so many suttas about the Siddhipatana but none of them actually gives in detail what each of the establishments of mindfulness entails. In the Siddhipatana Sutta, in the Majjhima Nikaya and in the Diga Nikaya, under Kaya Nupasana, contemplation of the body, we have 14 exercises. In the Sangita Nikaya, Kaya Nupasana is just Kaya Nupasana. It is not elaborated in any way. But the stock phrase is always there. The one that I repeated the other day, probably you would have forgotten. The Buddha talks about the four establishments of mindfulness. He says here, among dwells contemplating the body as the body, ardent, fully aware or clearly aware, mindful, after having subdued or overcome longing and dejection in regard to the world. And he repeats that. The monk dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, mind in mind, dhammas in dhammas, ardent, clearly knowing, mindful, after having subdued longing and dejection in regard to the world. So here you look at the word contemplating. The word contemplating is a translation of the word Anupasana. Literally, Anupasana means repeatedly observe, repeatedly see. Although the word contemplation can sort of cover the meaning of repeatedly observe, repeatedly see, it has a wider connotation. Nowadays, when you use the word contemplate, people think that you are reflecting or thinking about something. Right? Not? But it may not be so. Anupasana is about observing, repeated observation, looking, just like Vipassana is about distinctly seeing. At first when I was translating the Siddhipatana Sutta for my Sutta Siddhita workshop in 2012, I was tempted to translate it as observation of body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, dhammas and dhammas. But then when I look at the exercises in Kayanupasana, you have a couple of exercises that require you to visualize and to think and to reflect. So you cannot say just observation. So that's why I followed everybody else and used contemplation instead. And if you make a comparative study of the Siddhipatana Sutta in other traditions in the Sanskrit tradition, the Tibetan tradition or the Chinese tradition, then you will see that they are different. The four Siddhipatanas are the same, but the exercises in each are different. And some of them are very, very basic. So when you want to look at it in a very, very simple sense, in a simple way, it's simply repeated observation of the body as body repeated observation as feelings as feelings mental states as mental states mind as mind citta as citta and uh, dhammas as dhammas so body means anything that you can perceive with your five senses particularly your body sense when you perceive all these things you look at them body is just body body is not mine not me not myself body is not feeling, body is not mind, body is body. You are supposed to view it in that way, repeatedly view it in that way, or observe it in that way. Same with uh, feelings, feelings are just feelings, feelings is not the body, feelings are not the body, feelings are not mind, feelings are not dhammas, they could be dhammas, but feelings are just feelings. 
So it's the same for each of these four Siddhipatthanas. So when you practice open awareness, initially you are just practicing the first part, the preliminary, which is to overcome longing and dejection in regard to the world. Because you are trying not to grasp at the signs and features. And to facilitate that, I ask you to practice defocused awareness. Because once you focus, there is a tendency to grasp at the signs and features. So you defocus, so you cut down the possibility of grasping at signs and features. That fulfills the prerequisite for effectively practicing the Satipatthana. Because it says, among dwells, contemplating the body in the body, or repeatedly observing the body as the body, ardent, clearly knowing, mindful, after having overcome longing and dejection in regard to the world. So that after having that one is a prerequisite for effective practice of Satipatthana. That's why I started off with that open awareness, free and easy touch and go, with defocused open awareness. That will help to create the foundation for you to practice Satipatthana effectively. When you are practicing opening up your senses, you look at things. Then I also talk to you about the three characteristics and looking at cause and conditioning. So all this also points to the fact that the body is just a body. It's not you, not yours, not yourself. I give particular emphasis to the other three rather than the body. Your feelings, your mental states, the dhammas. Dhammas could mean anything else like your senses, the hindrances, whatever goes on in the mind. Most of the dhammas are connected with the five senses and the mind. So when you want to look at how to practice the Satipatthana in a very rudimentary way, it's simply this, to be aware of the body as the body, feelings as feelings, mental states as mental states, dhammas and dhammas. And you can accomplish all this by doing open awareness. First, as a foundation, and later on, when you incline your mind to verify the three characteristics and cause and condition, then you will also cover the rest. <laughs> 